this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. So you're an entrepreneur and you've got somewhere between a million and 10 million in annual revenue. And you're trying to figure out what's next. Maybe you wanna scale up, maybe you wanna sell, maybe you wanna bring in a manager and delegate some of the day-to-day stuff, bring in the next generation of leaders, maybe you wanna pass it down to your family. All of those options, the one prerequisite is that it's built to sell, that it's actually something that you could pass on to another generation without you. And that's really what we try to evaluate using the Value Builder score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the questionnaire, and then you're going to get a readout of how your business would be viewed by an acquirer across eight unique dimensions that acquirers care about. Again, it takes only about 15 minutes. You can do it free at valuebuilder.com. Do you remember that old movie, Wall Street, where Michael Douglas played the character Gordon Gecko, who was famous for saying greed is good? In a lot of ways, what we talk about here at Built to Sell Radio is, is kind of greedy, frankly. It's about getting a better multiple. It's about you know getting better deal terms, getting more of your cash up front. But for a lot of entrepreneurs, greed is not what's motivating them. In fact, I think a lot of business owners, when they decide to sell, it's actually fear. Fear that the good times will end, fear that their next recession's around the corner, fear that you know, their revenue streams are gonna dry up. And my next guest, Randy Ambrosi, found himself in exactly that spot. He was running a company called 3Max, which was an investment advisory business where they built up $6 billion of investment assets under management. When he realized that they had been underinvesting in technology and potentially exposed to things like cyber attacks and and in a stiffer regulatory environment, it was making operating margins you know, thinner and thinner. It was actually the fear of not being able to continue as a successful company that he started to realize that maybe they needed to sell. Here to tell you the rest of the story is Randy Ambrosi. Randy Ambrosi, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Well, it's nice to be with you, John. You are my first football star on the show. So tell me about being a football hero. You're, uh, you played the CFL, Grey Cup. These are years ago now, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, John, I love it when someone calls me a star. I, I've always thought that I doubt that my teammates would, uh, they'd probably be a bit perplexed uh, if they heard me uh, in that reference, but I love it. And uh, you use star and hero, so you and I are going to be great friends. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who don't know, uh, the CFL is is the sort of uh, uh, organization that's similar to the NFL in, in the United States where uh, there's uh, 10, 10 or so, te- I guess eight or so teams in, in, in Canada. Nine, nine teams in Canada, yeah. that's right. And I believe the Grey Cup is actually older, in fact, much older than the Super Bowl, like 100 years yeah, old. It, yeah, it, in fact, the Grey Cup is uh, this year will be the 105th Grey Cup. And the, and the Canadian Football League is one of the oldest continuously run sports organizations uh, in the league or in the world, I should say. So, you know, it's been around a very long time. And, you know, it's, it's a big part of the Canadian, um, you know, of the Canadian uh, landscape. So, you know, you you built and, and grew uh, and really led the transition of a company called 3Mac. Uh, and that, as I understand it, was Mac- 
McDougal, McDougal, and McTeer. Is that the old? That's correct. That's, yeah, which was a wealth management company. Um, and, and what I thought was fascinating, your experience, is that usually when we do this, we talk to you know founders of companies. In your case, you were sort of the hired gun. So I'd love to hear about the transition you made from professional sports to uh, you know wearing a suit every day. Yeah. Well, you know, in fact, John, I really started my football career with the idea that it would open all kinds of doors. It, it, I, I went to business school uh, at university. I really wanted a business career. It just so happens that I'm a, you know, you know, six foot four, you know, 200 and, you know, back in those days, six foot four, 275 pound guy that could, you know, move pretty well. So, you know, playing football was, uh, fa- you know, fantastic. Um I mean, I, I was a good athlete, I, I suppose, and I just loved playing football. But it really, uh, the nine years I spent playing professionally were all in service of getting my business career going. So I worked um, in the investment business for the most part during my career, and I was the guy that kind of changed in the uh, in the phone booth, you know, out of my suit and into my uh, football football stuff every day during the season, and I worked in the off season. So I really kind of laid the foundation for my business career while I was playing, and uh, I'm so glad I did. And I've had an opportunity to, um, you know, I, I was at one point the president of um, AGF, which is one of Canada's largest investment uh, mutual fund companies. And um, and then, of course, I had the great honor to serve as the CEO and president of 3Max. So I, I, I was kind of, I, I always felt like I was really born to, to be in a suit. It just so happened I was able to... Um, you know, combine that with, uh, with some, you know, athletic pursuits that were, you know, those are the, those are the, some of the experiences you'll never forget your, your whole lifetime because they were, they were absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I bet. So you were leading three Mac, um, this wealth management firm, as I understand it, you had mostly is mostly private clients, uh, you know, uh, wealthy individuals, families, mostly Canadian that, that you would manage their money for them. Is that the basic business model they had? Yeah, absolutely. And they had been at base, you know, uh, 3Max was founded in 1849. It was, it, it was, uh, and is the oldest investment firm in the country. Uh, its roots were from the very beginning, uh, helping Canadian families manage their, manage their wealth. And they never lost focus on that being their one true passion. As I, I did a little bit of research, which is rare for me, you should know that, Randy. Six, something like six billion <laughs> assets under management. Um, That's correct. Yep. And in fact, that at the closing of the deal, uh, which was very cool because, you know, you're you're trying, you're you know, you're there's these hurdles and benchmarks in the in the deal conversation, and uh, and we were able to step over the six billion dollar mark, kind of right as we were getting, you know, into pricing. So it, it couldn't have been a better, our timing couldn't have been better if we tried. And, and uh, was, it's of course a nice round number. And, um, and it was a, it was nice to cross over that before we handed the keys over to, uh, to Raymond James. I want to get into the acquisition uh, and selling the company to Raymond James. I want to know about like why, you know, why them, did they approach you, you approached them, all that stuff. But before we do that, let's talk about the growth strategy that you employed, because part of that was was buying when you were the head of 3Mac you you bought a few companies maybe talk a little bit about that strategy and what you looked for in a company to buy yeah well the strategy was really born out of my initial out of my initial mandate and uh, you know 3Mac John uh, I can say with great with great uh, 
conviction, one of the nicest collections of human beings I've ever had the pleasure of working with and some of the best investment professionals that I've ever, you know, that I've ever watched, uh, you know, uh, perform their craft. But they had really been stuck for a long time. They they had four billion when I joined them, you know, and, and so, you know, for a firm of, you know, 150 some years old and, you know, four billion is four billion is a lot of money, but four billion when you're 150 years old isn't, you know, isn't uh, uh, a, a gigantic number. And they were frustrated that for, you know, a, a very, very long time they had not been able to grow and now, now Randy, let me really just, my- can i just interrupt you there just for folks listening um you know 4 billion may sound like a huge number uh generally wealth management firms would earn in terms of revenue on that is randy would it be correct to say around 1% yes that's right so you know you're you're talking about a business doing roughly 40 to 45 million uh, you know and it's uh, when you know when i took over as the ceo and then we grew it uh, through through some acquisitions uh, to roughly six billion. And the one percent is a very fair um, is a very fair you know ballpark of what the ratio between between assets and and revenue. Got it. So I didn't mean to interrupt. You're 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 in. You walk into this this company. You're the founder. You're the CEO, and things are frankly pretty flat. Great bunch of yeah. guys, but no no growth. Yeah. And so, you know, they they really felt like they had a great story and they did. They There was uh, this long and storied history. They had stayed out of trouble for like literally in there. It's rare in an industry that, uh, you know, where regulatory challenges are, are you know, seem to be a, a fact of life. You know, they had this virtually unblemished uh, track record of um, regulatory compliance, like just no blemishes, but they hadn't found a growth story. And when I, um, you know, when I got there, what I, you know, I, I, I like to think of this, you know, it's like uh, you, you got, uh, have you seen the, the movie the Apollo 13 and they, and they put all these pieces on the table and they say, we need to make this out of all of this. <laughs> I, I haven't, but I'm, re- I'm reminded of yeah, MacGyver. Yeah, yeah. Remember that TV series? Yeah. Yeah. And, and then, and then it, it you know, the, the concluding line after they're successfully built this air filter out of all these parts is they turns to one of the guys and he says, you sir are a steely eyed missile man. And, and I, I, I would tell that story because I felt like they gave me all the parts that I, you know, that I needed and, um, and we could do something special with it. And we did, um, we did three tuck-in transactions. Um, you know, we, we were looking in our, in our firm culture fit was, was really everything. So, you know, we had to have investment professionals that really, you know, embraced, uh, uh, very thoughtful, you know, a, a conservative, um, very client-oriented approach, and and we found that in the in the businesses that we that we were able to acquire, they were all, you know, so much like we were, um, but opportunistically, they were suffering from ultimately what we ended up having to address in the sale was, um, the, you know, margins are compressing, and ultimately, uh, you need scale. And and that was really for us is it was a it was a race to get scale, and um, we made some we you know we brought some fantastic talent on, grew the business from you know from roughly four to six billion in in just a little under four years, uh, so that was a great success and you know we're all super proud of that and uh, and then we're able to bring all of those. Uh, you know, all of our existing uh, original team and all of our uh, acquisition partners into the Raymond James transaction. So it was 
you know, it was a, it was a win, win, win for, uh, for everyone. Got it. So you would be buying, you mentioned you bought three of these sort of tuck in companies, sort of roughly what size were these companies when you were buying them? Yeah. So they, you know, like for, they were roughly, they were roughly 600, just call, you know, say for rounding numbers, roughly 600 million in, in, in assets under management. So call it you know, roughly five, 6 million in revenue. Owner yeah, operated. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Owner operated. And, uh, like in, a, in, um, in the case of one of them, the, the two original partners who, you know, just, um, kind of were hitting the wall and, and knew that they needed a partner that could bring scale and efficiency to their business. And, and, um, and we were able to integrate them into a business that had a, had a very similar mindset. And how did you structure the deals to acquire companies? I mean, first of all, like, how did you value them? And then how did you pay it out? Was it, was it paid immediately or did they have to sort of have an earn out or some sort of to a hold back? Yeah, we did. Uh, you know, ours were, uh, you know, basically built on a three-step, uh, three-step buyout strategy. So, you know, uh, day one, um, you know, fifty percent, and then they they got two additional payments, and uh, and you know, we tied it into we tied it into you know them being able to transition their assets over. Uh, because that's that's the risk, you know. Like like anything, it's great to you know it's a great to to buy what they have, but you you really you need to get what they have in order for your deal to work. So we you know we structured it so they got uh, they got the full amounts based on you know hitting some thresholds. Happy to say those were easy for them to to achieve, and, and it was a testimony to you know the quality of their of their. Uh, of their business and the way they treated their clients. So that worked out really well. And the valuation was, you know, really in some respects, they're just completely in line with that, um, you know, with that uh, way we structured our deal with Raymond James. So, you know, they, the roughly, you know, 1% of revenue, you know, plus uh, let's, let's say when you're 6 billion and not 600 million, you get a little bit of a premium to, um, you know, for, for bringing a, a, a bigger chunk of business across. Got it. You, you just mentioned one percent of revenue, and you just threw me. So one percent of assets under management would be one percent of assets. Sorry, yeah, sorry, John. No, that's okay. So then you've got a sort of a revenue number, and then you're 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 agreeing to some sort of valuation on a multiple yeah. of revenue. Yeah, and our industry has really, I think, gotten pretty comfortable that you know one percent of one percent of uh, or a hundred percent of revenue, one percent of assets is kind of a place where you start a conversation yeah and uh you know ours were we were very high quality we had a very high net worth book uh business which is to say our our you know our average clients were you know were were wealthy um uh you know we had a, a large affluent segment and then a, a fairly good size high net worth segment as well and that uh, that allowed us to generate a premium on our um, on our valuation. So, sticking with the acquisition of these smaller firms, these kind of revenue, you know, five you know five million something in that in that neighborhood. Um, so they would be, you know, they would have heard the industry sort of benchmark of kind of roughly one times revenue or one percent of asset center management is sort of a a rough benchmark. You were offering them sort of fifty percent upfront and then a quarter or the other twenty five percent. Uh, and 25% in, in two tranche payments in the future, contingent on them moving assets. What was the reaction of those founders when you offered them? I mean, how did how did they react to that valuation? Yeah, you know what? I, I think 
John, for us, the way we the way we started is we were very upfront about how we saw uh, how we saw a deal done that could that could work for everybody. So we started by talking about our valuation model and said, look, we let's get this on the table right now. And here's the logic. And we, we took them to the logic of, you know, how ultimately the deal would be accretive for, you know, for our shareholders and at what level and what point, uh, you know, it wouldn't be accretive for our shareholders. And, and, and we were really, we were, the, the sales pitch really wasn't to come over and uh, dump your business and go have a holiday. It was to come and be part of something bigger uh, similar, but bigger, you know, and, and friendly and inviting and welcoming. And I, you know, I said to them, uh, and we talked a lot about this and they, it was a testimony to, to the quality of these people that, you know, we wanted them to walk into, into a meeting room and for their colleagues to be proud of the transaction, not kind of groaning like they, you know, that we had overpaid and, you know, they'd gotten a, you know, they'd gotten a great deal and, and we were left holding the bag. And, and I, once we positioned, you know, kind of our intention uh, and there was a thoughtfulness, I, I like to think a thoughtfulness to the, the, the strategy, um, it made it really easy. And then it was all about culture and, you know, it became a lot about, you know, systems and timing and all of those things. But it was done the way we managed it was to get it on the table early and get everybody comfortable with with how, um, you know, how we thought the rough constructs of a deal would look like. Did you have firms walk when you put it out so early? You know what? Really not. I, I mean, I think what we tried to do is there's a lot of businesses in, in North America in the wealth industry that are facing a similar challenge. Uh, you know, a lot of them just weren't ready. Like a lot of them, you know, was uh, just had the conversation, told them we were out there, you know, told them we were interested went through, you know, our valuation model. You know, I, no one walked away and said, well, we would never do it on those terms. Uh, for some of them, they they were they were intrigued by the idea of a transaction, but weren't ready to do it. And uh, and I always said, look, you know what, we're we're um, you know we're just honored to have a conversation with you today. And you know, if and when you're ready, uh, we're going to be you know we're going to be anxious and and excited to talk to you. So it was never a deal breaker. It's uh, you know I think sometimes it was. Uh, hey, okay, now we've got that number in mind. And we had a couple of firms say, you know, we'd like to grow a little more before we do this. And we said, well, you know, that's great too. And, uh, you know, we weren't in a rush. To, we, we didn't want to, you know, we weren't trying to, you know, sandbag anybody to do a fast turnaround. And, and frankly, for a firm of 4 billion growing to six in four years, it, it was a lot anyway. So, you know, we, we weren't, uh, we couldn't gorge on too many transactions. So that wasn't, that wasn't a, you know, having conversations that, uh, that didn't bear immediate fruit wasn't a problem for us. Got it. And just so that our listeners are clear on the definition of accretive, uh, when you bought a business, you would have to buy it for a multiple, essentially, of their revenue, less than what you thought your 3MAX would, would fetch in the marketplace. Otherwise, it would not be accretive. Is that your definition of accretive when you say accretive? Yeah, exactly. And ultimately, uh, that for sure. And then just one additional, you know, one additional, I guess, point, And that was we said, you know, we knew what our, you know, we we knew how we uh, would value the deal, what the cost of what the cost of that deal would be from an, you know, from an ongoing economics point of view. And we wanted to, we wanted to have a good ROI. We wanted to, we wanted that business to be 
uh, improving our earnings for the benefit of all shareholders so that, again, they were walking into a, a boardroom and people groaning that they had gotten a lot and, and the rest of the shareholders were left holding the bag. So it was accretive from a valuation point of view and accretive from an ongoing earnings uh, and, and business performance perspective. Got it. Before we get into the sale of 3MAX, I just want to probe a little bit more on this cultural fit. Because, you know, everybody talks about, oh, it's got to be a cultural fit. It's almost kind of a cliche. How did you actually measure cultural fit? I mean, was it a gut thing or did you have kind of quantitative objective ways that you said, these guys are a fit, these guys are not? Yeah, you know what? John, it's going to sound like a, um, it's going to sound like hokum, I, I suppose, but I've always felt in all of the things, uh, those types of conversations, you know, whether it's hiring somebody to do a job or whether it's acquiring a business from somebody, if you spend enough time with them and ask them enough questions, if you just poke around, you'll, you'll understand how they think about things. And, and I think that's something that we did really well. Uh, we took a very personal approach and we really did want to get to know them. And, you know, didn't include, it didn't, it didn't, uh, uh, wasn't limited, I should say, to questions about the business. It was questions about their families. And, and cause I knew how our people thought about their families. Like you could never have a conversation with anybody in our firm that didn't include 15 minutes about what they were doing, uh, you know, what they had done last weekend and, and, uh, that, that part of it. So, you know, really for us, it was spending time talking to them about their their life in addition. And then you got this feel for, you know, um, how they thought about their business, how they thought about the business relative to the life, how they thought about their life. And and I'm happy to say, um, and I'm just thinking about this this one particular transaction, and I'm just happy to say that those people were so amazing and they turned out to be exactly what we what we thought they would be. And I just because we had spent a lot of time uh, building a relationship with them and they and they proved to be exactly what we had hoped for. How does your physical size impact the negotiation of or acquisition of a business? You're six foot four, 275 pounds. I'm imagining when you walk into a room to negotiate the purchase of a business, people notice. Yeah, well, I think when I walk into a room, I get noticed. And that's a great question, John. And I, I, I thought about that a lot over the course of my career. You know, first of all, I do think it's a real advantage to be a big person. You know, it's just uh, I'm hard to miss in a room. I, I suppose one of the things that I have done throughout my career, I've tried really hard. And I, I learned this from my from my mom. You know, I, I've tried to just be not only the biggest person in the room, but uh, but the nicest. And to be polite and be friendly and uh, and to just, you know, really stretch out my hand and, and be a welcoming guy. So, you know, part of it, I suppose, in a way, is that's how I've learned to disarm people and to get them to think about me not as a not as an opponent, but but potentially potentially an ally and, and maybe at, at uh, down the road, even a friend. And um and 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 that's really been a formula that's worked for me. It's uh, a very very high on interpersonal relationships, very high on um, you know personal curiosity about what's going on in their life. And then you know a lesson I learned from a from a great uh, sales manager is don't just ask people questions, but actually listen to what their what their answers are, because if you can you know if you can say to somebody. 
after you met them, Hey, I think your grandson was playing, you know, playing in a baseball game last Thursday. How did he do those things matter to people a lot. And um, I've tried to bring that to the table as kind of part of my personal style. And I think it really has helped. So I, you know, big, big means you get noticed and then uh, you want to get noticed for, for the right things. And, uh, and I've tried to do that over the course of my career, you know, not always perfectly, but, but I'm proud to say, um, you know, fairly well. Have you ever used it to intimidate the other side? Not, no, you know, really, not really. I, I mean, I can't say whether, you know, somebody's in a room with me might be intimidated, but, but it's just not my way. Um, you know, I, I think you, yeah, I doubt it. I mean, I do think people notice that, you know, I'm probably could fold them up and put them in my back pocket and walk up <laughs> the room and they, somebody might not notice. Uh, but, but, you know, I think that's better left unsaid than said, I think. <laughs> All right, let's get into the sale of 3Mac to Raymond James. You've just joined this company. You're the hired gun. You're building it up, $4 billion to $6 billion. Why on earth did you want to sell this thing? Was, was this something that you guys had as the grand master plan all along? No. You know what? We really got caught in, um, you know, I, I think if I was to be honest and I would have a conversation with my colleagues, I think we started too late. Uh, the, the firm, the firm had underinvested in itself for, you know, probably 20 plus years. Um, you know, we had underinvested in our, in our technology, underinvested in our systems, our value added, uh, uh, you know, development uh, was, was uh, very skinny compared to the rest of the industry. The industry is um, across financial services in general, but certainly wealth management for sure. There's a tremendous amount of, uh, of, uh, compression, uh, you know, earnings compression going on. And when we, you know, we got to this level of success, we, we, we were, I think we were universally proud of, of having grown the firm. And then we took a step back and I, I credit the, the board for, you know, having this level of uh, intellectual curiosity and introspection to say, okay, now what? And, uh, you know, regulatory costs were, were, ri- you know, rising at a, at a, tremendous pace and uh and revenues were coming down you know uh, there's a there's all kinds of fee compression realities so we said well where do where do we go from here and you know what would type of what type of commitment do we need to make uh from a capital investment point of view and it and it caused the board to say okay so what are our options and uh, and that's when we did our first kind of peak we actually had a couple of unsolicited bids that were made on the firm about a year before we started the process. And, and it was good because it served as a bit of a primer to, yes, there are firms who are interested in us, um, but we pushed them away because I felt like we needed to do some work in order to, um, in order to understand how to think about a transaction. So we pushed them away. And then when, um, when we came to the, to the end of our fiscal year, in 20 in 2015 we were able to say okay now what and the board said okay now it's time to do an investigation so we st- struck a special committee of the board uh for the purposes of investigation and then we learned um you know what was possible and and it just seemed to accelerate from there what's the capital structure of the company in 2015 i mean who are the i, I know a lot of people talk about you know investment advisors as partners but who are actually the real partners, the people who actually own shares in the company. Yeah, yeah. So it was a it was a hundred percent employee owned, 
and uh, you know we had 180 180 employees, uh, and we were you know we would would say about three quarters of those were shareholders in the firm. No one single shareholder owned a, more than about four and a half percent of the firm. So, you know, very diversified amongst those amongst those 145 people. Lots of people, you know, just you know, it had shared, been with the firm for a very long time, and you know, owned their shares. It was, you know, it was an, it was it was as much a, a part of their life as it was an investment. And um, you know, we, in some respects, it's almost like a little micro public company with that many shareholders. Um, but, but that's how we were. So a private company employee owned and, um, and about 140, you know, in 140 shareholders. So I'm fascinated by this because most of the people we interview are, you know, owner operated, maybe they've got a, a private equity company involved or a couple of, you know, VCs, but it's usually very tightly held, you know, among the, the founder, or maybe one or two shareholders, you've got a hundred, and 80 employees, three quarters of which are shareholders. So roughly doing the math, 130, 140. So how do you, how does it work when you've got that many shareholders? Is there a, are you, is there a small group of them who are sort of approving these offers, uh, considering vetting offers? Does everybody get to vote on whether or not to go forward with the deal? Yeah. So we had a, uh, so the answer is we had a large board. So we were 21 21 board members of which I was one of those uh, board members and uh, those 21 board members, you know, were, you know, like all boards are, they were, you know, they were the voice of the, they were the voice for and of the shareholders. And, uh, so you, you didn't know, have you multiple to, share classes where one, one, no, share one, class voted no, one, those... one share class for everybody. But wow. if you go to hurtingcats.com, <laughs> you'll see a video of me, um, you know, <laughs> Uh, I love it. Yeah. So, you know, it, 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 it's, it's a, it was more difficult. I mean, for your, for your listeners and um, love to, you know, love to talk to them. And, and, and if I could ever be a resource to them, I'd, I'd be happy to have a conversation with anyone. I can always use more friends, but it was difficult for us in that we had a lot of different perspectives around the table. And, and I think it's a testimony to a really committed board a really committed management team that were patient because we you know we did have to nurture uh, a variety of points of view and in the end you know we had three unanimous board votes in support of the deal we had a unanimous shareholder vote in support of the deal and then uh, our deal was contingent on uh, signing all of our uh, portfolio management advisor talent to five-year agreements, and we had a hundred percent of um, of that audience signed. So we we were had a unanimous support, and I, again, I think it's uh, the, again one of the things I I think I, and I'll always be proud of is that we we got everybody to to be part of it, and uh, that doesn't happen very often in. Um, in transactions like ours. No, not with such diversity among the shareholders. So, so what were, if you could sort of bucket one or two sort of, you know, streams of debate, if you will, what were, were there kind of a few factions that like was one faction sort of looking for a better value another faction, maybe not looking to sell right now? Like what were the big sort of debate points? Yeah, I think the core debate point was just, at its fundamental DNA level was, you know, or do we want to sell our firm? 
you know, when you are part of something that's been around for that long, uh, you know, there's always the, there was the necessary, I think, question of, you know, do we want to give up our independence? You know, we've been at this a long time, you know, what would our founders think? And all of those kinds of questions. And we had family members, uh, we had employees and, and some of our most talented people whose families go back to right to the very beginning to uh, Lauren McDougal, who founded the firm. So, you know, there, there was a lot of, there was a lot of emotion in, in the question of, should we sell the firm? And, you know, we just kept methodically um, revisiting the core tenets of what we were doing and why we were doing it and what would it mean to the future. And one of the things you've got to tip your hat and give credit to Raymond James is, and I think Paul Riley, who runs uh, Raymond James, uh, uh, he's based in Tampa, a phenomenal man, just a gentleman in every respect. And Paul Allison, who's the CEO of Raymond James in Canada, they, they completely got us. And, you know, when you're sitting across uh, at a table uh, with people who have taken the time to understand you, and they knew we were struggling with that issue, but they were fantastic. And then one of the things they did that ultimately became a real, um, a real um, uh, assist in getting us over the hurdle was uh, they committed to our, our name, to three. So it's three max, a division of Raymond James. And, um, and, and they, and because they got that three max, the brand, the history was so important to so many of our people. And, um, and when they did that, I think they really popped the top off, uh, you know, the opportunity to get the deal completed. Interesting. We think of these things as so economic, but in some cases it's something like a name that, that makes people more comfortable. Yeah. So help me, help me get my head around something because you know, I know in the wealth management space, portfolio managers, generally, they're a pretty highly paid group of people, uh, certainly well above the average sort of income of for most uh, North Americans, if you will. I'm looking at the math. And, and again, I know we can't disclose the, the actual valuation, but if, if wealth management firms are trading somewhere in the kind of one to one and a half times revenue, working kind of back into the numbers, if the largest shareholder was 4%, that means many of the other shareholders were much smaller than that. And, and where I'm going with this is, is I'm trying to do the math and say the amount of money the average shareholder, the average portfolio manager stood to gain from the sale was not going to be life-changing for them. It wasn't no. going to be retired to a yacht in the South Pacific kind of money. So why give up their independence? Why why not just continue as an independent firm, you know, make my, you know, fat bonus check every year and and have complete autonomy? How did you you know like what was the other side of that equation? Why would why were yeah. they willing to give all that up? John, that's a, that's a great question and you you really just now got right to the crux of why it ended up happening and and really as a credit to my colleagues and I, you know, I think they are again one of the finest groups I've ever had the pleasure working with in the end it boiled down to one simple question how can we best serve our clients and will you know will the ability to bring all of the resources to bear that a Raymond James could bring for us will that make our clients so uh, a will it you know will we be more secure so you know when you look at cybersecurity as an example so Look, I, I don't know, I, you're, you and I are doing this uh, 
uh, we're doing this by telephone, so I'm not sitting with you. But if I asked you to reach in your pocket and I reached into mine, we probably have as much cash and change as we had spent on cybersecurity in, in, in the last two fiscal years of our independent existence. Raymond James spends 20 some million dollars a year on cybersecurity. And when we looked at things like, how are we going to protect ourselves and our clients? You know, we, we just were at a loss to how to invest in, in any meaningful way in, in an issue that frankly is, is uh, plaguing businesses of every description. And I, I got, uh, my family owns a business in, in Western Canada and they've, they've had a cyber crime committed against them. Um, and, and that was like an example of how we came to look, we, we got to protect our clients. We, we need that big engine of that big engine of capabilities to make sure that these dollars that our clients trust us with, that they're going to be there. And, 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 um, and then, you know, beyond that, all of the value added services like financial planning and, and uh, intergenerational, intergender wealth strategy, and, and all of these things that are so important as a boomer generation, which, you know, we're all serving as an industry, largely serving that group. How do you, how do you be valuable to them? Not just when they were, you know, when they were acquiring and growing their wealth, but now that they're in a deaccumulation phase and a transition phase to the next generation of their family. And there were things that we knew we could do better with Raymond James and the real ultimate credit to my colleagues, Every one of them was they they had that vision in their mind, not the economics of the deal. They had that vision of servicing the clients was the was the idea first and foremost. And that's what allowed us to get the deal done. It's such an interesting point because so many, um, you know, when we talk about on this show valuation and how to get a better value, et cetera, you know, we forget or I forget personally that, that sometimes the motivation has nothing to do with getting the next turn of multiple. It's actually on behalf of the seller, you know, a fear that what they built could all come crashing down. It's not always in a cyber crime, but there could be, you know, too much customer concentration. There may be other you know, things that people worry about. Like, what if this happens? What's the disaster? It sounds like in your case, I mean, the compliance regulations that you were increasingly being asked to accommodate and then, and then all these cyber crimes were becoming, uh, you know, frankly, kind of scary for folks. Well, they, they were scary. And the thing is, you know, the, nobody wants to hear uh, that, sorry, we can't access your, can't access your portfolio today because our system is down. And, you know, no, like literally when you're talking about people's hard earned savings, nobody wants to hear that. <laughs> even, even if you can say, well, we, we're pretty sure the money's there, but, but for today, we kind of can't get to it. <laughs> like, that's, not the, that's not the kind of conversation that most people find all that comforting from their no. financial professional. Um, no. and, and nobody wants to, to find out that their, you know, their statements have been splashed on the internet. Nobody wants to find that, you know, some some you know Russian former Cossack is sitting in his basement in, in his in his mom's basement in Russia. You know, just uh, just took twenty thousand dollars out of their account, and he's and he's buying a, a new uh, buying a new stereo for himself. <laughs> like those those things worry people a lot, and and it, and it should. You know, it's a it's a it's a bit of a crazy world, and and so those factors I think were for us so fundamental to the decision. And again, you have to give you have to give people credit where credit's due. 
it would be easy to get uh, lost in the economics and lose sight of those more important things. And it, and I'm proud to say our people never lost never lost focus on uh, on what really mattered. Fantastic. Now, you and I met, uh, we actually didn't meet face-to-face, but we got connected because uh, we both spoke at something called BTF or Business Transitions Forum. And and I saw you on the agenda and was fascinated by your experience. One of the things that you spoke about or, or your session at BTF was called Top Deal Breakers. I'm assuming these were things that that obviously break up deals when they're sort of into the diligence phase. Just out of interest, what were, what were a couple of the, the big deal breakers that you, uh, that you referenced in that session? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, and I was asked that same thing when I was asked to sit on the panel that I was on. Uh, John, for us, the hardest part of the deal, the thing that I think we really felt put us most at risk was the original, uh, the original uh, uh, information uh, package that we were going to provide to potential bidders. And what it what it for what it did for us is it really um, it really exposed us to the fact that you get one chance to make that good first impression. Like you can't say to somebody on a Tuesday that we have uh, 47% of our clients are high net worth. And then when they see a three weeks Thursday, it's now 52% or it's 18%. Like you kind of have one chance to get all your most important information um, to them in a way that's going to hold up to whatever scrutiny they're going to throw at you. And and when I said earlier um, that one of our challenges was we had so completely underinvested in ourselves we had underinvested in systems, and so we had the hardest time reconciling all of the things that we would need to have be able to tell people about our firm with high, high, high conviction and evidence. And um, thank goodness for our partners, because we used um, we used Deloitte as our investment bank and a woman named Catherine Code, who, I mean, I, I think some days I, I can't even begin to think of how much she did to help us but she really put the stress and, and fear, I suppose, stressed to us and put the fear into us about that, that first impression piece. And, um, and we had great legal support as well. And, you know, they made sure that we would, that we were ready to go. So a hardest part of the deal, the hardest, hardest that I think would have undone everything had we not gotten it right was getting our house in order and being able to being able to present our firm to all the potential bidders in a way where we could stand up to whatever scrutiny they would throw our way and you know we tried to kind of make our make our story hurricane proof and um, and in the end I, I think that's why we got the deal done is that piece we we had to undo decades of under you know under under um emphasis on systems and data and we got that right and we got everybody singing on the same song sheet so that you know when they asked compliance they got the same answer if they asked finance if they asked if they asked sales and when we got that in shape we could breathe that was the hardest thing for us you know when when you get into the deal itself you know there's always a tense moment or two there's you know something that somebody you know looks at differently than you do and you know you have your disagreements but it's where the value of great of great professional help your your advisors in this case boy they are great because they've been there and done it they they you know they don't sweat the 
They don't sweat this small stuff. And uh, meanwhile, you're paddling like a duck. Like, you know, you're trying to look calm on the surface and your feet are going like heck below the water. And they just never let us, they just never let us down. And so, you know, we had a couple of, we had a couple of issues relating to a disagreement over, you know, what's something, the value of something. And, you know, we felt strongly that it was valuable and somebody else, you know, didn't. And, and, uh, you know, we, but we were able to overcome that largely on the strength of great, uh, great advisor, calming capabilities. Got it. So hurricaning proofing your business. That's one I haven't heard before. Randy, this right. has been an amazing, amazing story. I'm so grateful for you, uh, you investing the time with us, spending the time with us, I should say. Where do people uh, best reach out to you? What's the best way to sort of find you? Well, you know, I, I'm I'm on LinkedIn, so Randy Ambrosi uh, on LinkedIn, and uh, I've said this before. I'll say it again. I can never have enough friends. I'm always uh, always happy to connect with somebody if they can if they make a request and they can reference our conversation today. Um, I'll be sure to I'll be sure to accept them. And uh, John, it's been a pleasure. And please, if there's ever anything I can do for you or your listeners, don't hesitate to ask because I'm. Uh, Happy to have spent this time with you, and I hope that I was able to transmit some value. The friendly giant. Thanks, Randy. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I like the sound of that. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W.